It's on page 737 in the Pew Bible. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He hid, he made a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sain. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for these servant songs. Father, there is a richness to this particular text that, Lord, I, I, I'm just standing here knowing we're, we're not going to, we're barely going to touch the surface of it. And so, Father, I would ask this morning that as your spirit accompanies the preaching of your word, you would uh, create in us this this knowledge and this, this yearning for the richness that is in this text. That, Father, we would understand that things that we're going to just, or out of necessity's sake, we're, we're going to talk about them and then move on. But, Father, would you create a hunger in us for the, the richness and, and the life-giving sufficiency that is your word? Lord, this is a very, very busy season. And in the midst of the busyness, sometimes we get a little squirrely. And so, Father, would you use your word this morning to recapture our attention and to help us as your people 
to be those who wait in this season of Advent in a way that brings you honor and glory. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the second of four servant songs in this particular section of Isaiah. We encountered the first servant song in Isaiah chapter 42. And in that text, we discovered that God's anointed servant is going to bring God's justice to the earth. And so through these four servant songs, God is giving us a CV or a resume for the coming Messiah. We're going to know not so much what he looks like, but we're going to know what his mission, we're going to know what it is that he's supposed to do based on these four servant songs. And so now in Isaiah 49, we're given the second point on the Messiah's resume. He's coming to address a very specific issue. And it's an issue that Isaiah uses to frame this next section of the servant songs. Now, the Bible is a wonderful literary work. And when I say that, I don't, I don't say it that way to somehow diminish the fact that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's sacred, that it, it has within it uh, the message and the means of God's salvation. I'm not trying to diminish the sacred character of the book. No, but I do want us to understand that Isaiah is a wonderfully skilled author. And he writes in such a way, uh, you know, God could have just given us this kind of grocery list about things that the Messiah is going to be, but he doesn't. No, he writes with great beauty and great imagination. And so there is in these in this next section of the servant songs, there is a top and a tail. There are, as it were, sort of bookends to this next section. So look back, if you would, just one verse. Look at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22. Let me read it for us. There is no peace for the Lord, says the wicked. Now, if you'd like to, keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 49 and turn over several pages to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21. For in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21, we read exactly the same thing. There is no peace for the Lord, says the wicked. The fancy term for this, as you know, is an inclusio. It is the top and the tail for this particular section. And so the three remaining servant songs help us answer a pressing question. How can God bring peace to the wicked? Or, if you like, we can ask it this way. How can God hope to do anything with a wicked world? How can God hope to do anything with a wicked world? Now, like Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 49 follows a particular pattern. God has the servant speak for himself. And then God himself gives us commentary about his servant. That pattern then, the idea of the servant speaks and then God gives us commentary, 
gives us our two points for this morning. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline for our time together. We will see both the servant's program as well as God's purpose for his spirit. So the servant tells us his program and God tells us then the purpose for sending his servant. Now, when we combine the fact that there is a top and a tail that brackets this section, and when we combine the structure of the servant songs, that there is a program and there is a purpose, we get our big idea for this morning. And it's this. Only in the program and purpose of God's servant can the wicked find peace. Only in the program and purpose of God's servant. Can the wicked find peace? Friends, last week we discovered Advent is really a season of waiting. And what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 49 is Isaiah is going to introduce us to the one that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. All of the redemptive purposes that God has made up to this point in his scripture are now focused, laser-like, on the person we're being introduced to in verses 1 to 6. So let's look at those first. We need to get with the program. We need to get with the program. The servant himself speaks to us. He tells us why he is coming. He gives us characteristics of his ministry. Let's look at verse 1, because in verse 1 we learn of his commission. He starts off by addressing not just Israel, but he begins by addressing the coastlands. And he calls those who are from afar to give attention to the word that he is about to speak. Friends, you may recall that earlier in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, when God called to Abraham and he made a covenant with him, he told him that he would be a blessing that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. This is not some kind of parochial deity who's very regionally defined, telling only his followers and his worshipers that he has good news for them. No, this is the creator declaring to all of his creation what the servant is going to do. What do we know about the servant? Well, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, when we read, as I hope you will as a family this year, when you go back and you read the Advent story and you come to Luke's gospel and you come to the part in which the angel Gabriel is standing talking to Mary, what is one of the details that Gabriel gives Mary about the child she's going to bear? And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From the body of my mother, he named my name. From the very beginning, in fact, from eternity past, the first member of the Trinity had a very particular and distinct role in his redemptive purposes for the second person of the Trinity to play. We see then 
the servant's commission. In verse 2, we're told about his activity. We're told about his activity. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Now, friends, this commission of the servant, the one who Lord, the, the God, the father uh, named from the body of his mother, his commission is going to be an active one. His commission will be one of power and yet of hiddenness. He says, he's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In other words, Jesus' ministry is going to be a ministry of the word. He's going to declare not his own thoughts, not his own teachings, but he's going to declare the very word of the Lord. And the message that he proclaims is going to be the message that his father gave him. Now, as we read Isaiah, and as we read verse 2, we cannot help, if we know our Bibles at all, we can't help but jump to the end of the book. For in Revelation chapter 1, when the Apostle John is talking about being sort of enraptured in this vision of the resurrected Jesus, do you remember one of the ways that he describes him? Keep your finger in Isaiah 49 and turn with me quickly if you would. Uh, just go to the end of the book and then once you're to the end, take a left. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Let's look at verse 16. Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. In his right hand, he's talking now about Jesus, seeing the resurrected Christ. He held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Friends, right from the beginning, Isaiah is painting for us a picture of who God's servant is going to be, of what he's going to do. And first and foremost, the power of the ministry of the servant is going to come from the word of God. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. But there's a really intriguing paradox about this servant. He carries about, if you would, this great offensive weapon, and yet his ministry is also one of hiddenness. Turn back to Isaiah 49 and look at uh, the second half of verse, uh, verse 2. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow in his, hiver, in his quiver, he hid me away. This message of proclamation, this message of making the word of God known is nonetheless going to be paired with a ministry in which God's servant is going to be hidden by God himself. Now, that speaks of God's care. Notice he says, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. God the Father is literally, if you think of it this way, he's literally holding the servant in the palm of his hand. And yet, like an arrow, he's, he's back in the quiver until the Lord is ready to draw him out and use him. His commission is an active one. His ministry will be both one of power and of 
hiddenness. In verse 3, we're told about his, about his identity. I have, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the word that was heard from heaven? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, you would think that one whose commission, identity, and activity come from God the Father would have this wonderful, amazing ministry that all of the earth would willingly and joyfully bow down and crown him king. But look at the first half of verse 4, for there we learn of the servant's disappointment. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. One of the things that we will learn from the fourth servant song that is yet to come in the book of Isaiah is that Jesus is a man of sorrows. He felt the pain of having labored hard and yet walking away with the feeling that he labored for nothing. And his toil and his ministry were in vain. But then we go from his disappointment to his triumph. I love how Isaiah puts it. Yet surely, the second half of verse 4, yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense with my God. And now the Lord said, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. See, it's what Simeon said when Jesus was presented to him in the temple. Remember in our New Testament reading for this morning that God has raised him up to be the consolation of Israel. And Jesus is declaring through Isaiah 49 that God's going to use me to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel back to him, because he's honored in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord is his strength. Now, that's great news if you're Israel. It's not so great news if you're us sitting here this morning in Fremont, Nebraska. But look at verse Six. Friends, verse six is amazing news for those of us who are Gentile. Here's what he says. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Well, and it, so here's what the Lord is saying. Hey, it's great that you're going to gather Israel back, but it's too light. In other words, it's not weighty enough. It's not heavy enough. You're capable of doing more than just gathering Israel. Look at the second half of verse 6. And if you're a Bible circler, a Bible underliner, go to work. Because this is your jam right here. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Friends, this is amazing news. God's servant is not just because Israel has blown it. God's servant is because when we read Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22, and he says, there's no peace for the wicked. He's talking about us. 
He's talking about you and I. This is not a Jewish thing. This is not a Gentile thing. This is a human thing. If you're here this morning and you're a son of Adam, or you're a daughter of Eve, as Lewis so memorably said, this wonderful news is news for you. Jesus is the light that you've been looking for. And God the Creator, in His love and in His grace and in His mercy, sent His Son to redeem you and I. But I wonder this morning, do you recognize this particular program in the Jesus that you serve and worship? If not, then why not? Could it be that from time to time, or maybe most of the time, we're guilty of worshiping a Jesus of our own making and not the Jesus of the Bible? One of the things that we've been talking about as we've been going through these servant songs is a part of what it means to be human. And we said there are three things. We're all worshipers. We're all image bearers and we're all interpreters. Well, I fear that the Jesus we're worshiping is a Jesus of our own imagination and not the Jesus that the Bible presents to us. But I also fear that as interpreters, uh, we're making ourselves the key by which we're trying to interpret the person and work of the second person of the Trinity. Here's what I mean by that. I find myself on a fairly regular basis when I am disappointed, um, either by my own shortcomings, by the shortcomings of others, or just that God has this rather annoying habit of not following my plan and instead thinking that he's sovereign and he's the creator and he's holy. And he's all the things that I'm not. And when that happens, I find, and it's, it's so aggravating because I feel like, I feel like I'm praying this all the time. God, you're the creator, not me. You're the one seated on the throne, not me. I cannot interpret your work, your plan, or your mission by my own understanding. I must interpret it through the Bible. When we get to the New Testament, we're going to see that that's the issue of the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels. You see, they had predetermined the program that they thought the Messiah was going to follow. And ironically, their Messiah had political and military aspirations. They wanted one thing from the Messiah, and that was to restore Israel back to them. Get rid of the Romans and restore Israel to the Israelites. They were going to, he was going to make Israel great again. Well, I wonder if we too aren't guilty of the same thing. 
We think about our own particular kingdom. We think about that which our eyes can see. We do not think in terms of the kingdom of God. I hope you didn't miss this morning in the New Testament reading as Simeon was uh, absolutely proclaiming and professing what Isaiah 49 tells us, that not only is this child going to be for the raising up of Israel, but he's also going to bring salvation to the whole earth. That three times in three verses, Luke tells us that Simeon was able to understand these things only because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's let's not miss that. Keep your finger in Isaiah 49. Turn back to our New Testament reading for today in Luke chapter 2. And let's start in verse 25. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the. Thank you. I'm, I'm sad that the Iowa State grads the only one picking up on this. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the. Friends, I want to say this as lovingly as I can. If you keep doing the Jesus math and coming up with the wrong answer, you have to stop and ask yourself, am I indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Or in other words, am I really what I think I am? Am I really what I profess to be? It's disconcerting to have to be reminded that Jesus' plan, Jesus' program is not the program that you set for him. And yet, only by God's Spirit do we understand that the, the mission and the ministry of the Messiah is not to be my own personal genie in a bottle, but it's to bring light to the Gentiles, that salvation would reach to the very ends of the earth. Secondly, and quickly then, we need to understand that it's God's purpose, not yours or mine. Now, we've already sort of been hinting at this, but let's get right down to brass tacks. Understanding the servant song rightly means that we're going to view and interpret and understand the work of the servant through the one who sent him and not as consumers of the product that is provided. God commissions and sends his son into the world to do a specific thing. And so the one whose opinion then matters most about this is not your opinion or my opinion, but it's rather, did he do the work of the one who sent and commissioned him? It's this rather annoying reminder yet again that we are the creation and not the creator. The servant doesn't work for us. Rather, he works for the one who sent him. So in verse 7, we see that God keeps his purpose. He keeps his promise in verse 7 to his servant. 
He says, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Now, keep that phrase in mind because we come to, when we come to the last servant song, the one that we always read on Good Friday, this is just, it's going to explode off the page to us. What's going to happen then? Our kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And you're saying, Pastor, when has that happened? Not yet. But it will. Remember what the Bible tells us about the second advent of the Lord Jesus. There is coming a day in which every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, God is not only keeping his promise to his servant, but he's also keeping his promises to his people. Verses 9 to 12. And it's, it's just this, it's this beautiful language. And I, I, I would just encourage you to read it. Look at what he says. He says, I've answered you. Verse 8. I have helped you. I will keep you. And he will give his people as a covenant. He says to the prisoners, verse 9, come out and those who are in darkness appear. They will be fed on bare heights shall be their pasture. By the way, after the first of the year, we're going to start, we're going to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount and we will see this in Jesus' ministry. They will not hunger or thirst. By springs of water, he will guide them. Behold, all these shall come from afar. Behold, all these from the north, from the west, and from the lands of Syene. In other words, God's promises to his people are not merely through a genetic or biological descendants of Abraham. God's promise to his people include the nations. Well, what do you do? How do you end uh, this marvelous song about the servant? How do you sort of uh, put a bow on it or put an exclamation point on it? Well, you do what the Bible always does. Paul does it at the end when he's talking about the gospel in, in the book of Romans. The writer of Isaiah, Isaiah does it as well. Look at verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. And will have compassion on his afflicted. Friends, over and over again, the Bible shows us this. What did Simeon do when he saw the Lord's Christ? He sang. He sang. He sang a song of joy, of worship doxology and it's interesting isn't it that the work the servant is going to do he calls the heavens and the mountains to break forth into singing we sing it don't we every advent joy to the world the Lord has come why because far as the curse is found, God's servant 
is bringing about God's kingdom. All of creation, Paul tells us, is groaning under bondage from sin and awaiting its redemption through the Lord Jesus. Friends, as we come to the table this morning, we have not only heard of God's covenant faithfulness to his servant and to his people and to all of creation, we get to taste it. We get to touch it. We get to smell it. The table speaks to us of God's covenant faithfulness, the promise that he made to our first parents in the garden he has kept. It also speaks to us, though, of God's coming kingdom. We're not waiting for the first advent of Jesus. It's already happened. No, as God's people, we're living our lives in expectation because we're waiting for his second coming. And we know that when Jesus comes again, and we can differ as to what this looks like, but we know that when Jesus comes again, he's going to establish God's kingdom. That the petition that we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will on that day finally be fulfilled. Jesus will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the table gives us a glimmer of that. The table, and through these uh, very kind of hidden things, very simple things, nonetheless speaks to us powerfully of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so in a few moments, we have the privilege of celebrating together, uh, not what we have done, but what God, through his servant, has planned and purposed. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We bless you for your word. We bless you that at no point in his life and in his ministry did Jesus ever stop and say, I don't like the program. I don't like the purpose. We bless you this morning that the second person of the Trinity was faithful to the will and plan and purpose of his father, even to the point of death on Christ. Father, we bless you this morning, uh, for we can sing joy to the world, for the Lord has indeed come. And Father, in this season now of waiting, we pray that we would look forward expectantly to the second advent of the Lord Jesus. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.